Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, April 22nd, 2016. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, and I mean from all over. People have been trading places across continents, and it's crazy, all the travel we've had going on. But we have uh, Doug, Erica, Tiffany, and Elliot. Welcome, guys. Hello. 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 And uh, we miss uh, Gabby today. She can't be with us, um, so we wish her well and hope that uh, she's able to, to come and join us next week. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Today, our topic is uh, inflammation. And so we're going to be talking about uh, all different types of, uh, of inflammation. What are the causes? Um, you know, is it acute inflammation? Is it chronic um, and what are the results of inflammation? Because it's something that uh, listeners of our show may be uh, aware you know, of inflammation's role in disease, uh, especially from reading the uh, forum. Uh, there's a lot of talk of it that goes on there. Um, but especially over the last number of years, a lot of research on the forum has uh, uncovered the fact that inflammation is essentially the root cause of uh, most, if not all, disease and, um, you know, so, of course, there are causes of inflammation itself, but inflammation is kind of the thing that you want to treat uh, when you're looking to alleviate uh, many, many different conditions. Um, so we're just going to talk about that today and hopefully shed some light on the topic. And if anybody has not been familiar with this, hopefully it will um, turn on some light bulbs for you and maybe give you a, a, a different approach uh, to whatever might be going on with you. Uh, in different ways that you can treat it. So, um, yeah. So let's uh, let's get started. Uh, I guess to kind of kick off the discussion, I wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, well, first of all, I guess uh, scratch that. Let's talk about like what inflammation is. I mean, it's. I'm, I'm sure anybody you know who who has a, you know, a grasp of of language understands the concept of what inflammation is. Um, but uh, we can get a little bit into the, the details about, about what happens when your body is inflamed and how uh, inflammation can actually be uh, a positive. It's, it's a thing that your body does um, to, you know, as an indicator of something that's, that's going wrong. And so when we were talking before the show, uh, when we were planning the show, I know, Elliot, you had brought up that, that concept um, that inflammation can actually be a good thing. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind just riffing on that for a little bit, and then we'll, we'll get into, uh, you know, the differences between chronic and acute inflammation, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, in, inflammation, if, for those who, who aren't aware of the term inflammation or don't really understand what it actually is, um, inflammation is basically the body's response um, to an invader, so it, it can be a pathogen. It may be, um, for instance, when you cut your hand, what happens is straight away um, your body initiates a response which your hand will start to swell up, the blood will clot, um, and then it will start to form a scab. Now, this is actually very important, and if you didn't have inflammation of this, uh, of this kind... Hello. Sorry, I think I just cut out there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Can you can you guys hear me now? 
We can hear you now, yeah. And he's gone. Yeah, so, sorry guys, I think my internet connection is a little bit slow today. Uh, uh, yeah, basically, you have acute inflammation, which is your body's response um, to an outside an outside agent, essentially. If you didn't have this, then you would die very And he's gone again. Yeah, we're having some problems with Elliot's connection here. My connection seems bad, too, actually. It's going in and out. Hmm. Well, so, inflammation is basically just <laughs> redness, swelling, heat, and pain. Like, if you've had an experience where you sprained your ankle, and you look down, and you notice that it's swollen, you feel it, it feels a little warm, it might turn a little red, and, of course, it hurts, and then you kind of... You can't walk on it, so you lose a little function. So that's basically what inflammation is. It literally means on fire. And as <laughs> Elliot was saying, like, it's a response to any kind of invader, like a pathogen or an injury or a toxin or a heavy metal, a virus, anything like that can cause an infl inflammatory response. Yeah. And I think so I the think big difference is that... Um, <laughs> There's, oh, is Elliot back? Yeah. I think so. I, I, I was ahead, just going to say that I think there's a, a big difference between the, the acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. So an mm. acute situation is where you get, you know, like you, you get a, a the, uh, the example used quite a bit is a, if you get a splinter. You know, then all of a sudden it gets all red and puffy around where the splinter entered. And, and that actually is a good thing because that's actually helping to fight off all the, the possible pathogens that might have got in with it and helping to uh, repair the area. But um, like there's increased blood flow and everything, obviously, to, to get more of the um, immune factors there to help with that. But the problem is when you have an acute inflammatory situation, where you're constantly, uh, your body's constantly mounting this inflammation response. Um, that's when things can get really bad because uh, your body is not designed to be in a constant state of inflammation. So uh, if you look at something like, say, gut inflammation from eating a, a toxic food of some kind, um, you, your, your gut should not be inflamed all the time. And, you know, if you, if you take that splinter example and imagine you got it kind of in your knuckle, um, you can see how you kind of lose function in that knuckle, like you can't bend it as much as you usually do. Well, imagine your gut trying to function like that all the time, and uh, you, you can kind of start to get a, a picture of how um, bad that can be if that inflammatory response is, it becomes a chronic situation. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mark Hyman talks a lot about it. He wrote a book about anti the anti-inflammatory diet, but he talked about how the list of things that cause inflammation is relatively short. Like uh, Doug was saying, poor diet, mostly sugar, refined flours, processed foods, trans fats. Stress is another one, and hopefully we'll get into that, how to deal with stress and inflammatory issues. Uh, hidden or chronic infections with viruses, bacteria, yeast, and parasites. And then also allergens from food or the environment. And toxins, like Tiffany mentioned, mercury, pesticides, heavy metals and um, also molds. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's um, Dr. Mark Hyman has a pretty good little, I think it's a 100-page book about how to start recognizing 
inflammatory foods and how to cut them out of your diet. And also nightshades are also an inflammatory food. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking yeah, of Mark Hyman, he also oh, ahead, uh, talked about the 14 signs of inflammation. So a lot of people hear inflammation and they don't kind of equate it to what's going on with themselves. So he says, like, if you're bloated, you belch a lot, you pass gas, you have diarrhea or constipation, that can be a sign of inflammation, fatigue and sluggishness, itchy eyes or itchy ears, dark circles or bags under your eyes, joint pain and stiffness, like with arthritis. Uh, if your throat is irritated, if it tickles, and if you cough a lot, and you're, you're, you know you're not obviously you know sick or having a cold, uh, stuffy nose, sinus trouble, excessive mucus are all signs of inflammation, as well as acne, cysts, hives, uh, rashes, inflamed-looking skin, uh, flushing on your skin, water retention, and skin puffiness. And interestingly enough, uh, craving certain foods. So sometimes, like, we'll crave the very foods that we shouldn't be eating because it kind of gives you that opioid kick and it helps the pain go away. So if you crave certain foods, you should, you know, think that maybe something is going on with some kind of inflammation process. And he also said uh, compulsive or binge eating to go along with that. But oddly enough, he didn't have headaches on there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think that's a sign of inflammation, too. So those are some of the signs that Mark Hyman lists as signs of inflammation. There's something interesting I thought from this uh, Hyman article that's up on SOT called Is Your Body Burning Up with Hidden Inflammation? Um, and that's more of a uh, like a chronic condition as opposed to the acute, although I suppose it can be acute, but um, chronic inflammation is, is a little bit more on the hidden side of the spectrum, I think. Um, this quote that uh, from this article here, he said, a study of generally healthy, quote-unquote, elderly population found that those with the highest levels of C-reactive protein and interleukin-6, uh, which are two markers of systemic inflammation, were 260% more likely to die during the next four years. <laughs> so that's quite an increase. And the, the increase in deaths were due to cardiovascular and other causes. Um but the, uh, you know, the hidden inflammation, systemic inflammation can really, really be damaging. And it's something that you don't really notice unless you're paying attention to the signs, um, you know, that your body is kicking out or you're, you're really watching, you know, your diet and, and what's going on. Um, but then even in cases where you, you are watching your diet, you might be in some sort of a transition phase where you're trying different things to see what works and what doesn't. Um, you know, like uh, some of us have, have recently discovered, and I haven't done this test yet, but that uh, that they react to eggs. And uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> when I do the test, I'm really hoping I don't because I love eggs. But, you know, uh, if I do, there you have it. Um, but, you know, there are certain things where you might think, oh, this is okay. This is part of like the paleo keto diet. Uh, and then you might find out that you're your body just reacts to that uh, with an inflammation response, and of course, if you eat something like that on a on a regular basis, then you can you can end up with chronic inflammation. 
Well, but it also might uh, be Jonathan with the eggs. It might yeah. be the fact that, especially in the U.S., the chickens are so full of hormones and sure. antibiotics. So it could be back to yeah. that virus. You know what I'm saying? Like, it'd be interesting yeah. to do a little research if you had your own chickens that weren't pumped full of God knows what. If you reacted to eggs mm-hmm. in the same way. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting issue. I've known a few people who were lactose intolerant who then actually tried raw milk and didn't have a response to it. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's uh, they may have been reacting to the, the hormones and the antibiotics uh, in, in processed dairy. Um, but, you know, that's a hard one to say. So, yeah, I think the, uh, you know, inflammation is, is one of these sort of like dry kind of medical topics. Um I think there is a really fascinating side to this, which is that idea that it can kind of rage in your body unnoticed, uh, you know, even for years and years, and you won't notice the effects until they build up and get really bad, and then you're like, oh, I have this condition now. Um, you know, where did it come from? And, you know, in, in many, many cases, it, it came from uh, generally your, your diet over that course of many years uh, or chronic stress, you know, from a job or from your state of mind. Um, all of these things can contribute to a, to a degeneration in health. Yeah, and if you're at your doctor's office and they say, oh, you have arthritis or you have pericarditis or atherosclerosis, anything with itis or osis on the end of it basically means that part of your body is inflamed. But mm-hmm. to, in my mind, if that one part of your body is inflamed, you can assume that other parts are inflamed, too, because they had to travel to that part of your body in order to get inflamed. So there's probably inflammation on, to, on the way to that part. But basically, mm-hmm. yeah, if anything with itis or osis on the end basically means inflammation. Yeah, and it's too bad that the, the mainstream medical community kind of, because it's so segmented and everything is, um, like, th- th- there isn't kind of a holistic picture of what's actually going on. Like, really, somebody should just be kind of treating the inflammation. You, you know, not, mm-hmm. what they'll do though is they'll send you to a specialist on that particular organ and kind of uh, have, have you deal with that person. But, but really, I mean, dealing with systemic inflammation, you, you, it's kind of the same method overall is to, to kind of decrease the inflammation for whatever, you know, find out the cause and then deal with that rather than send somebody to a specialist on a particular organ um, and have them kind of come at it from a very kind of closed perspective. Just, you know, deal with the overall inflammation and then, uh, uh, you know, you, you probably see a great deal of improvement. Yeah, well, I think that's a big... Oh, go, on. go ahead, Eric. Oh, I was just going to say, that's what Dr. Mark Hyman talks about in the article, Jonathan mentioned, is that it's um, inflammation run amok is at the root of all chronic disease, like heart disease, obesity, diabetes, dementia, depression, cancer, and even autism. <clears throat> and going back to that gut connection that jo- uh, that Doug mentioned, you know, the... the, the dysregulation of the gut i mean they see that in a lot of autistic children and when they clean up their diet and they remove inflammatory foods like gluten these autistic children turn around in a lot of cases mm-hmm. yeah yep yeah the the kind of um it, it's not really in mainstream circles at all but people are, are getting uh their autistic kids on um these diets 
that kind of remove a lot of the inflammatory um, foods from the diets and are seeing kind of big, uh, big changes. Um, and it, it's essentially an anti-inflammatory diet, you know, take out the gluten, take out the dairy, um, take out, you know, nightshades, any other um, kind of classically um, uh, inflammatory foods. And, you know, that's even without getting any kind of testing to see which sorts of foods they might be uh, reacting to individually, like Jonathan was mentioning eggs. Um, you know, they're not thought of as a, as, as a, a common inflammatory food, but a number of people do react to them. So it's kind of like there's different stages of getting getting rid of this inflammation is kind of first you get rid of the stuff that's inflaming everybody, then you figure out what's inflaming you on top of that. Yeah. There was even some uh, uh, discovery, if I remember correctly, on the forum about uh, coconut, like coconut oil and coconut milk, that mm-hmm. certain people reacted to that in a negative way. Yeah. Yeah, and coconut oil is promoted as one of the really you know, great oils, but not everybody can tolerate it. That's why it's so important to find out, you know, what bothers you specifically, even though other people may be able to eat it without experiencing any problems whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, um, you know, I'll, I'll kind of try to avoid nightshades and, you know, I, I'm not as diligent with it as I should be probably, but, you know, I, I remember being at a dinner with my uh, family at one point and I was like, um, okay, yeah, no, no tomatoes for me. And they're like, well, what's wrong with tomatoes? Tomatoes are really helpful. They, you know, they're really good for you. They're good for your vision and like all this other kind of, they start listing off all these health properties of tomatoes. And it's like, yeah, but you know, not for me. You know, you know these these things might be healthy in and of themselves if you just kind of like break it down and look what at, at kind of the nutrients and phytonutrients that they have in them. It's the same thing with uh, coconut oil. Yeah, it's a really healthy fat profile and something that you know most people could probably benefit from. But um, you have to make sure that you are capable of of processing it, that your body isn't mounting some kind of inflammatory response to it. Right. One of our chatters here, Lynn, says, yep, I can't do anything with any kind of coconut product. Mm. So, you know, certain people discover that, uh, and then you just alter accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, coconut, one of the things it's being promoted for now in kind of uh, alternative health circles is uh, it, it actually not even necessarily alternative, but uh, even to the ma- in the mainstream to a certain extent is uh, for Alzheimer's. Um, and, and people are saying, yeah, you know, because of the fatty acids, because they're converted to ketones so quickly, um, then yeah, that's, that's a very beneficial thing. But if that individual is, um, having an inflammatory reaction to it and they have tied Alzheimer's to inflammation, um, it might be doing more harm than good. I think that speaks to the benefits that so many people like kind of in our circle have seen from switching, you know, first to paleo and then um, some to the, the full-on ketogenic diet, that a lot of these conditions just kind of improve, you know, in, mm-hmm. in due course with that switch. Um, yeah, and I think that that's, oh, I was just going to say, I think that that's a, that's a really important first step, you know, before, you know, now it depends. They're, every case is different. You might need to go. Uh, to the doctor and get a shot of like cortisol or prednisone or whatever, depending on what your condition is. If you're really, really suffering, I don't want to rule that out entirely in like emergency situations. Um, but a good first step, you know, is to look at your diet. What are you taking in? Make those gradual changes and you will notice an improvement. I mean, I can, I can almost a hundred percent guarantee 
that whatever is going on with you, if you take these steps towards the anti-inflammatory diet, uh, that they will begin to improve. Mm-hmm. And the reason that they work, because uh, the paleo diet or the ketogenic diet, is because you're cutting out so many offensive foods, nightshades, gluten, grains, dairy. It helps to heal your gut. Like if you're eating like a standard American diet with lots of carbs and sugars and trans fats and, you know, fast food and all that, uh, day after day, month after month, year after year, you're the lining of your gut starts to break down and food particles kind of seep through. You're not supposed to have like food proteins floating around outside of your gut. So when those things get outside of your gut, they migrate to certain areas and you get some kind of itis or osis, you know, and you know, that's really not supposed to be what's happening. So when you change your diet, your gut has this chance to heal and the, the cells in your gut become uh, stronger they have more integrity so and they're closer together so things don't spill out where they should just be staying in your I think yeah. what's um what what another important thing to consider is that uh, gut permeability is um fluid in the sense that it's it's constantly changing in response to environmental stimuli and so if you're eating coconut oil and tomatoes in January when it's snowy outside. Um, if you look at this from a sort of evolutionary perspective, the body was never designed to consume fruits um, or tropical sort of oils like coconut or palm oil in the winter. Um, and, and that's a fact. You, you can't go anywhere in winter, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere and find tomatoes and coconuts growing out in the wild. So perhaps to some extent, maybe our body, uh, for a lot of those people who, who can't tolerate these things, um, maybe there's an aspect of sort of seasonal, seasonal variability to that. You know, like perhaps what you can tolerate in the summer in high light cycles may actually drastically differ from what you can tolerate in the winter time. And I think, uh, you know, what, what we can try to do is sort of align ourselves with um, with nature in that sense, you know, and don't necessarily discount, okay, coconut is always bad for me. More like, okay, maybe I should try it in the summer and then lay off it when it starts to get darker and colder. Mm-hmm. Mm. There's yeah, probably a genetic component to that too. Um, yeah. You know, the idea that these things are tropical oils. You know, if you know how genetics that come from the tropics, then maybe they're not they're they're not the best for your kind of genotype. Um, I, you know, that you can't necessarily say that because I know there are people who, who don't have tropical genetics, but they can tolerate coconut products. So, um, you know, who knows, maybe it goes back to like ancient ancestry and that sort of thing. But, uh, but you know, that, that kind of thing might be something you want, you want to look into as well. It's definitely at least an indicator. Um, I know I, I, we had talked about this before the show and, uh, I think I had brought this up in, in another episode of the show as well, but. I remember a, a case of uh, from here in, in Michigan, there was a guy who went to a doctor who said, you know, uh, he, he had been having some chest pains and he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And he was, uh, he was aghast because he was extremely healthy. Um, he was an avid runner. 
Um, he did a lot of juicing, you know, he did the, uh, you know, the high fruit kind of high carb athletic, uh, leaning diet. Um, and he appeared, uh, to be extremely healthy, but his doctor then told him, you know, that he, well, you're of, uh, Scandinavian ancestry. So you cannot be eating all of these fruits every single day and not expect mm-hmm. it to have a negative impact because the, the genetics are incompatible. So while, yeah, it may, it may not be a, uh, you know, a one-to-one, uh, correlation, um, there, it, it can certainly be, uh, be a guide, I think. And you say this guy was a runner, like a marathoner? He was also a runner, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of stress to be putting your body through day after yep. day. So, yep. yeah, when that stress response is, Picked up high, your body is not going to be in healing mode. It's just going to be like in defense mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the long chronic exercise exposure is definitely inflammatory. I mean, all exercise is inflammatory to a certain extent. That's why it works. You know, you build your muscle by you know causing damage to those muscles, and then there's an inflammatory response, and the the, the body builds up the muscle uh, stronger than it was previously. Um, but if you're doing this long cardio marathon type of exercise, that's uh, your body often can't recover from that inflammation as quickly. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's incredibly hard on the body. Yeah. And I, I don't know how this relates to other tissues in the body, but I'm guessing it's kind of the same. But I, I had an experience recently um, where I overstressed my uh, – ankle from riding my bike too hard and I hadn't like built up to it because we got into the spring here and I was really excited and so I took the bike out for a ride and went for a really long ride um and the next day when I got back I was really really sore and my Achilles tendon on my right ankle started to swell up really bad um and so I started looking up you know Achilles tendonitis and uh there's that itis you know is the inflammation of the Achilles tendon um Mm. from, from stress and overwork one of the uh, interesting things that I found while I was reading about that <clears throat> is that specifically with the Achilles tendon, when it uh, when it gets inflamed and breaks down or tears slightly, when it rebuilds itself, the structure of the um, the, the fibers uh, in the in the ligaments um, they don't rebuild in the same way. It's kind of like if you have pasta and it's all stretched out nice and neat, and that's what a fresh tendon should look like. When it heals itself, it's kind of like tangled. Um, you know, and it, it heals back in sort of a, a misconfiguration from what the original configuration should be. And so, you know, if you take that example and then look at chronic inflammation throughout the body, when you have this inflammation and, and then you, it, it, your body is, is always trying to repair itself, even if you're hammering it with negative things all the time. So as it repairs itself, it repairs in these misconfigurations and your tissues become kind of knotted, um, you know, your, your fascia, uh, might, the layer between your like skin and muscle that might be kind of knotted up. Um, and you might actually work yourself into a, a state where that's, you know, it's just permanently that way because the, they've rebuilt themselves, um, in a misconfiguration. And so hmm. I think that's where a lot of those like the chronic, uh, pain and soreness, uh, especially muscle pain and joint pain can come from. Hmm. So, but I had really good luck with uh, DMSO that actually brought down the inflammation and killed the pain just within a few days. Um, so that that worked really well for me. 
Um, but as I was, we were talking about this before the show, I, I stunk really bad. So if you're going to use, <laughs> if you're going to use DMSO for a condition, just be sure that you can be away from your friends and family for a few days. To me, it smells like oysters. Like who's eating oysters? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So another interesting aspect of this, I think, is uh, the brain, the brain inflammation. And that was that was something that was kind of a light bulb for me when I first learned about it was, it, you know, and I'm, I guess I'm not sure why I'd never made this connection. But I remember when I first read about this years ago, it was like, oh, wow, I guess. Yeah, sure. Your brain can become inflamed. Um, and then there's a lack of blood flow. Um, you know, it impairs the functions of the tissues, which then systemically impairs the functions of the uh, the, the signals being sent back and forth. And so you can actually hurt your um, your ability to think properly um, and to go throughout the day, you know, with, with proper kind of critical thinking faculties by having an inflamed brain. Um, and the, uh, of course, it, 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 uh, it's a multi-risk factor kind of thing. It comes from many different sources, but um, especially if you get into a case where you are chronically uh, inflamed and have systemic inflammation, um, it will eventually work its way up into your brain. And there was an article on SOT here that inflammation is associated with lower intelligence and premature death, where they said, um, <clears throat> uh, let's see, research recently published in Brain Behavior and Immunity uh, used large population-based registers containing data collected over several decades. Inflammation and intelligence were measured in uh, 18 to 20 years of age uh, in nearly 50,000 young men and deaths over the following 35 years were recorded. Uh, quote, although we knew that inflammation associated with infection or cardiovascular disease could impair brain function, this is the first time that similar associations have been shown in healthy young people, said Dr. Carlson. The suggestion, uh, this suggests that even low levels of inflammation can have detrimental consequences for health and brain function. Yeah, so, been... you know, it's... Well, this is it because... Oh, sorry. No, please. <laughs> I was just going to say, because um, you've got this really tight-knit system. It's like a closed system, and it's called the blood-brain blood barrier. And so it's your body's way of basically determining what should and shouldn't cross this particular type of circulation. So when you eat something, it, get, it gets absorbed by the gut. And it goes into um, one of your. It goes into the portal circulation, but then your your body doesn't let everything into your brain. Okay, there's there's a specific um, type of circulation that that only allows very specialized sort of nutrients and chemicals to enter into the brain because obviously the brain is. Oh, Elliot, we're losing you again. Okay, I think I keep cutting out here. Uh, yeah. Apologies if my connection's bad. Basically, the blood-brain barrier is really specific, and it doesn't let that much in, okay? If you've got chronic inflammation, then this blood-brain barrier essentially loses its specificity and begins to allow all sorts of different chemicals into the brain, toxins, uh, pathogenic bacteria, you know, mm. um, it can allow all sorts. And... 
you know, I think it was Nora Gagaldis in her book Primal Body, Primal Mind. She um, she spoke about how um, it's been sort of estimated that 90% of people who have gluten intolerance, um, they don't actually experience any physical symptoms that they're consciously aware of. So they don't experience IBS or diarrhea or anything that usually would be associated with gluten intolerance. But she talks about how, um, you know, for 90% of these people, um, the, the symptoms that they, that they, um, that they, they experience are primarily neurological. Mm. So you've got this unknown. Yeah, you've got this gluten intolerance and, um, and you don't even know about it because, mm. you, you know, you haven't got any, um, you know, overt symptoms. But actually, it's mostly affecting the way that you, your brain functions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, I could see well, how that would be really easy to miss, um, you know, because you're you're just going throughout the day and you might be kind of bummed out or you might be, you know, like, well, maybe it's my job or, you know, maybe I'm just feeling down today or it's cloudy, you know, so I'm a little tired and. You know, and you don't notice um, that over many days and months and sometimes even years that you have, you know, and there are there might be like up days, um, but you just have this general sense of, of malaise that you have to work really hard uh, to get over. And I think a lot of people turn to, um, like we were talking about earlier, the diet cravings um, to correct things like that, because sure, you know, um, you eat some bread, you know, or you eat some sugar. Uh, you drink a lot of coffee, you get that boost, uh, and then you feel good for a little while. And, and then you get home, you wind down for the evening, you might feel crappy for a couple of hours, and then you go to bed. You get up the next day, you have cereal, milk, sugar, coffee, and start the cycle over again so that you feel okay. When the things that are making you seem, they're, they're making you think that you feel better are actually causing that further systemic inflammation. Um, so it's really like it's it's just like a vicious kind of addiction cycle where you get the high, you crash, um, you feel bad, you sleep, you come back, you take the high again, and you just keep doing that over and over. And you get so used to it year after year, you think that's just the way you operate. And you have no idea right. that you could actually feel better. Yeah. Right. Well, the, the brain connection is very interesting too because they've they've, they've done a lot of um, studies recently showing that it that depression is tied to, it's like an inflammatory response, um, mm. and they've 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 tied a lot of the 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 issues with um, with depression to inflammation, um, and they've even said that they think that a lot of the the psychiatric drugs. Where they have, you know, this mechanism of action that they're they're assuming that kind of goes on, and that's why they work. They might actually just have an anti-inflammatory effect, mm-hmm. and that's why um, taking some kind of psychiatric drug can help with depression. Another interesting thing, actually, is that um, I, for for years they've been studying uh, Saint John's Wort, which is an herbal remedy that helps with depression. And they've been really stumped on this because it's not a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which everybody assumed it must be if it's helping with depression. So it's like, why do we, you know, what's the mechanism of action? Well, it must be a placebo or something like that. But the, the fact is that uh, St. John's wort is anti-inflammatory. So that's probably mm. its mechanism of action and why people uh, get uh, relief from depression by taking this. So it's, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, people – you know, load themselves up on these uh, antipsychotic, well, not antipsychotic, antidepressant medications, 
and um, you know get it get maybe get some relief from it. Maybe they could just be using uh, St. John's wort or more uh, likely if they actually cleaned up their diet, uh, cleaned up their toxic exposure, cleaned up the environment, that probably would give them uh, a lot more relief. Yeah, and the thing with St. John's wort and other antidepressants, I think one of the things that they found is that they uh, inhibit the production of inflammatory cytokines. And if you... Mm. If you have a lot of these inflammatory cytokines floating around in your brain, it doesn't regulate glutamate like it should. And you have all this glutamate, which is an uh, excitotoxin. So your brain is like overexcited and that can lead to symptoms of depression. So probably that's one of the ways that they work if they do work some of the time. But um, they did some tests with people who have, like, autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis or fibromyalgia or things like that. And they found that when they tested their blood, they had higher inflammatory markers like um, interleukin-6 or TNF-alpha or a C-reactive protein. And sometimes if they they started on the St. John's Ward or some kind of antidepressant uh, medication, they found that those markers went down. So that's proof that, you know, depression is an inflammatory condition. Yeah, it's interesting, too, just on, on this sort of topic, uh, getting away from depression for a second. Um, apparently statins, uh, the uh, cholesterol-loading medications, might be effective for the same reason when they are effective. They're not nearly as effective as everybody seems to think they are. But, um, you know, everybody just concentrates on the, the, the cholesterol numbers. You know, you take statins until you get the numbers within a particular range, and then, you know, your doctor is satisfied. But uh, for any um, good effect that they have, um, what might actually be happening is that they are just a anti-inflammatory. And that's why they have any any beneficial effect at all. It has nothing to do with what your cholesterol numbers are. It has a, a, everything to do with whether or not you are inflamed because atherosclerosis is that osis again. It's an inflammatory condition. So has anybody ever had their C-reactive protein checked? <laughs> I have not, no. No. Well, no. I, I haven't either, but that's one of the tests that you can get to see if you have hidden inflammation because it's a marker of inflammation, and it's produced by the liver. So it kind of attaches onto dead and dying cells or bacteria, and it sends out macrophages to come in and clean out the junk. So if you want to test yourself, you can test get a, a, a C-reactive protein test, and if your level is over three milligrams per liter, then you know you have hidden inflammation if you don't already have symptoms that indicate such. Mm. Well, also Which brain isn't really fog. a bad idea, considering... Yeah, I was just going to say also brain fog. Like a lot of people, I think, suffer from that inflammation at a very low level and have no idea because of the brain fog aspect, you know, or headaches mm. or... Um, you know, and don't even connect it with the food situation at all. So if you think that everything that you eat is fine, go out and get a C-reactive protein test <laughs> and see what it says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a bad idea to do that. Um, just because, like we were talking about before, the idea of the hidden inflammation. 
You know, a lot of times people just don't know that they're in this inflammatory state. So getting a C-reactive protein test wouldn't be a bad way just to, or a bad idea just, just to kind of check and see, see where you're at. Or, yeah, you mm-hmm. could do it like before you try eliminating certain foods and then do it afterwards and see what the difference mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. A little self-experiment. And there's yeah, really we're promoting if, this when none of us have done it, though. <laughs> <laughs> you should, yeah. even though we haven't. If um if someone's got the money to do it, then I think it is a great idea to um to sort of periodically test and do a few different tests as well. Um, you know, you could get your fatty acid ratio tests done. Um. Like you the know, omega hate. six to omega three ratio. Yeah, omega six and omega three ratio. They should theoretically they should change um, throughout the year. And I know there are certain people who who sort of um, you know recommend certain ratios and stuff. It kind of differs, but um, it, I think it's good to keep on track of that. And secondly, um, your hormone panels and um, you know check how your thyroid's doing. Uh, really, I mean, like, if you have the money, it's it's a great idea just to test all of the things that you can as often as possible as you're making changes in your diet as well, because that that's a really good indicator, and it can it can it can give you a good idea of what's going on inside of your body. You know? Yeah, I think a, a, a part of the the bummer about this too is it's not just the the money. That, I mean, that's obviously you need the money to get the test done, but I think a lot of people too are reticent to try to be their own uh physicians in that in that way um you know and we've talked about this on the show before but it's like uh you know i would love to say like well i guess what i'm trying to say is one one option is to talk to your doctor if you know if you have like a family practitioner or whatever you go to and ask them questions about this what do you think about inflammation you know see where their head is at like do they agree you know, that systemic inflammation can cause these things. Can you help me kind of figure it out? Um, and if you're not in that kind of a case and if your doctor is just like, well, here, just take this, take this, you know, and like, don't worry about it. Um, then you, you have to learn certain things about your body. You have to get these tests done, do some research, spend the time, learn about the information. Um, because I know a lot of people that I've talked to are like, well, that's, you know, I, I'm not a scientist and that's just too much science for me to like figure out, mm. uh, you know, and, and they're like, uh, so I, it, I just don't have the time like to do that, you know, cause you have kids or activities or whatever. Um, so it, it's, it's a, uh, I guess it's kind of a hard thing to, uh, to, to tell people like, look, you just need to suck it up and do it. But that is kind of the case. Like, I mean, if you want to learn about this, you need to do some research, learn what the terms mean, what the ratios should be, what your levels should be, go through the information, um, and go through that learning process. Um, you know, there's not a way to just get a test that comes back and says, Hey, you're good. Or, Hey, you're not good. And do this, you know, you need to actually get into the process. Yeah. It's an unfortunate situation though, because some people are, you know, the, 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 one of the reasons that they're resistant to doing that kind of work is just because they are in a bad state. You know, they mm-hmm. might have some kind of uh, maybe low-grade brain, brain inflammation situation going on. So the, the thought of, like, looking through the science and kind of reading blogs and finding out where they're at and what they need to be doing, uh, just that whole process seems overwhelming. So, yeah, it's, it, it, it's kind of a tricky situation. 
when we have this. Oh, go on, John. Oh, go, oh, I was going to say we also have that societal programming too, where you know, like I'm not a doctor, so what do I know? Mm-hmm. You know, like there's, you know, I just I'm not I'm not trained for this. Well, it's like yeah, okay, so you might not be trained to do surgery, you know, or you might not know the complete human anatomy or have like Gray's Anatomy memorized or anything like that. But there are things that you can learn. I mean, you know, you can really learn about your body and at least get the basics about what you should and should not be doing. Well, I think it yeah, also think... Has, has to do with having some sort of uh, sensorial experience, too, like being yeah. in aware, you know, like with the brain fog thing, you know, is, is, is you're not functioning in an optimum way, and how long do you want to suffer like that, you know? Uh, as we were talking about earlier, like the gluten intolerance. For me, I never had any physical reactions to gluten, but I had chronic headaches and really bad. And it got to the point where it was like my quality of life was so bad after a headache that I wanted to change something, and it turned out that it was the gluten that was causing the headaches. And just getting off of it within like two weeks, you know, I haven't had a headache in years. And for anyone that suffered from migraines, it's extremely debilitating and none of the medication that they give you works you know there's still this whole theory what causes migraines but for a lot of people it could really just be diet but how, how much do you want to kind of suffer through it you know i think comes right down. that reminds me of i was just listening to another podcast that i listen to on a regular basis and uh it um it was an interview with a woman who was a comedian and actress, and I'll just leave her name out, but she said that um, she had just gotten this new migraine medication from her doctor that was like a lifesaver because it knocked out the migraines. And then in the same section of talking, started talking about, uh, you know, how great it was to, like, go into, like, binge eating sugar, you know, <laughs> and, like, having, like, you know, I just have a week where I just got to eat a lot of sugar, you know, and then I feel great. Uh, and then not not making that connection at all with the chronic headaches, and then like, well, but I have this medication and it fixes it, so I can do whatever I want. Unreal. I, I think a lot of people are are that way, you know. Yeah. And it, I, it's not that they can necessarily even be um, blamed for it; they just don't know. You know, they just don't know those connections. Doctors yeah, no aren't about to give advice on that either. Hey, maybe you should. Uh... Stop eating sugar for a week or two weeks and see if that's the cause. Forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, to be honest, doctors aren't even trained in nutrition. I think, um, you know, the common sort of medical degree only gives a few hour lectures in nutrition. Um, so they're fairly behind uh, modern medicine is. And it's the, the way that they view disease is really quite counterintuitive. Like in, instead of looking at the root cause of something, they tend to just cover up the symptoms, but that doesn't really work as as we can see. Um, you know, it's it, it's it's logical and it makes sense to understand the cause of something, correct the cause, and then hopefully the symptoms will dissipate anyway. You know, but modern medicine hasn't <laughs> doesn't seem to understand that for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was shocked one day. One of the doctors I was working with told one of his patients to avoid dairy <laughs> for asthma. Wow, wow. <laughs> he actually wrote it down <laughs> in his notes. I was like, what? 
He didn't suggest smoking? <laughs> no, they're still, still anti-smoking. Smoking is the worst thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Well, has one anyone, interesting... Oh, go ahead. Has anyone ever had food allergy tests or IgG tests? No, I'm planning to. No, yeah, I'm currently currently in the process of um, planning that as well. Mm. Well, that might be another test to get aside from the C-reactive protein. Like if you get your IgG tested, that is like a delayed allergic response. So you might not feel like any overt symptoms, say if you eat a piece of chocolate or something, but your body may still be reacting to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's generally a good indicator of um, a leaky gut as well. So even if someone is on, uh, you know, Even if someone is on like a clean diet, then um, if they if they've still got many of these sort of IgG um, allergic responses to these for like a wide variety of foods, then it, it is quite a good indicator that um, that the gut is still, you know, um, still too leaky. So perhaps there are certain things that they can do to sort of alleviate that, you know. Mm hmm. Well, I, I wonder. A, um, oh, go ahead, Tiff, please. I had a, a nice experience last night with some French chocolate. <laughs> 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 I just had one little square, and later in the night, I started getting a headache, and I woke up kind of like not a full-on headache, but kind of just look a, a little discomfort in my head. So I went and I read what was on the packet of french chocolate and it said traces of gluten so even just a little little bit it's not i wouldn't consider that a delayed response it was almost immediate like maybe in a couple of hours (laughs) i started getting a headache just from that little bit yeah but allegedly yeah if you have even a little bit of gluten, it can mess things up for about six months, according to one article on SOT. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Nora Gutgaudis said that as well, that she mentioned that uh, for, um, well, for most people, but especially for people who have, you know, acute gluten sensitivity, um, that, that even the tiniest amount can last many, many months. Yep. I've definitely noticed that in uh, in making diet changes, and um, you know, I know I've mentioned this before. I'm I'm by no means like a bastion of uh, of, of diet uh, strictness. I do my best, but I do uh, backslide now and again. And of course, every time I do, I'm I've got that like consistent reminder, that, like, dude, you can't do this. You know, <laughs> you get messed up for for a week, for two weeks, um, feel tight, feel fatigued, uh, get headaches, get brain fog. Um, and it's it's become extremely clear to me now over uh, a number of years of, of really trying to adjust my diet that uh, that when I do have um, reactive substances um, the the sensitivity keeps going up and up and up so I guess I'm I'm glad for that in a way you know because the signs are becoming much more clear now um, <clears throat> but you know I, I feel bad for people who don't have that uh, that acute um, kind of uh, sensitivity to the reaction itself because you don't notice. Like we were saying, you know, sometimes 
you know, it's not like your neck is immediately going to seize up um, for a lot of people or you're immediately going to feel tired all day or anything like that. Um, but you just have these, uh, these small symptoms uh, like brain fog and things that, that, that build up over time and you start to believe that that's just the way things are. You know, that's just my body. That's just whatever condition I have. And there's really not much I can do about it. And, uh, I mean, that's part of what we're trying to do with this show is, is help people understand the diet and health, uh, connection, because unfortunately, even though a lot of progress has been made in this area, it's still, um, not widely understood by the general population. I think that, that, uh, really specific connection between your health and what you're eating. We still have this, this unfortunate yeah. programming that, you know, my health is connected to the medicine I take and I, I, I take the medicine, I try to fix the thing and then I eat whatever I want. And that's just how it goes for a lot of people. Well, the guys yeah, like the, the uh, sorry, go ahead, doc. I, I was just going to say just on what Jonathan was saying there, what I, I was finding, you know, when I first started changing my diet and stuff and when I would have uh, some situation where I did backslide some often, was when I was like, you know, um, out for dinner with uh, coworkers or eating at a family celebration or something like that, and I would eat something bad. One of the things that I started, the connection I started to make is that I would I would have um, more physical body type issues that you would never necessarily connect to what you're eating. So for me, like at one point I was bending down to uh, put laundry into a washing machine, and all of a sudden my back, I twinged out my back. And I was like, wow, you know, why did that happen? That's so crazy. You know, I was in pretty good shape. I was exercising regularly, but um, I had this back issue. And, you know, I healed from that. And it took a couple more times for that to happen before I started to connect it to uh, going off the diet and, and, and kind of eating bad things. I mean, I wasn't even eating, but, you know, it's not like I went right back to eating bread and cheese or anything like that. It was just maybe like, you know, too many potatoes or something like that. Um, but yeah, it, it took a long time for me to kind of make that connection that, that, you know, I would have this kind of injury that shouldn't have really happened. Um, and I, I tied that to what I had been eating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, no, I was, I was, I was just going to say, um, the gut (coughs) is basically like the body's first line of defense almost. I mean, in, in biology textbooks, it will say that your skin is the first line of defense. But essentially, your, your, your gut is in direct contact with the environment. And so if you're ingesting something that irritates your gut, then that, that is really the, 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 the easiest way um, for something to get into your body or, or to cause problems. You know, so um, it, hasn't, it hasn't been sort of well-established in um in mainstream medicine but you know it's coming out now and the research is really showing it that your gut is really the the most important um sort of component in maintaining um a healthy immune system and health Mm -hmm. yeah and another unknown factor that people might be dealing with especially a lot of our listeners who (laughs) have been on the diet for a long time and are still having inflammatory responses. Um, there was a great article on SOT about heavy metals and inflammation and how uh, they could be silent killers, right? So they talk about due to the nature of heavy metals, important nutrients are blocked from absorption and assimilation. 
observed by Dr. Henshu, the activity of the enzymes is also dependent upon nutrient cofactors such as magnesium and zinc. So toxic heavy metals such as mercury specifically block the absorption and assimilation of these nutrients and thus can negatively affect the enzyme activity. Um, they talk about how things like mercury, right, it's just super toxic and, and it um, blocks this absorption. And maybe Doug or someone can go into a little bit more of all the science behind that. Mm-hmm. But um, you know how if you can detox your body from heavy metals, that it's essential to dealing with that inflammation state. And, uh, you know, they talk about heavy metal, metal chelators like chlorella, zinc, and zeolite. So, like, chlorella binds to heavy metals like mercury, arsenic, cadmium, and lead and safely escorts the toxins out of the body, all without risk of reabsorption in the digestive tract. you have any more insightful information on that, Doug, like what the heavy metals actually do? Because I know for some of our listeners, uh, people have had the heavy metal tests, and some people are definitely suffering from heavy metal toxicity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't hear totally everything you said there. My connection is very spotty at the moment, so if I cut out, I apologize for that. But yeah, I think I think one of the big things is that when you, you do have kind of toxic heavy metals in your system, it can interfere in a lot of different ways. And like I said in the article, you know, it was it, it's it interferes with different enzymes. Um, and you know, you need enzymes for every process that goes on in your body. So, um, yeah, and, and just by interfering with these different enzyme systems, you can have, um, issues with, uh, with inflammation come up. One of the things it said in the, in the article actually was that it, it interferes with, um, the, uh, prostaglandins in the body. Like the, um, they're, they're different kind of, uh, um, they're, kind, they're almost like hormones, but they're not quite hormones. And there's inflammatory ones and there's anti-inflammatory ones, and you need to have a good balance of both. But by having heavy metals in the system, um, you actually the body will lean more towards having the inflammatory ones and not have the anti-inflammatory ones for shutting it off. Um, so that that's that's a, a, a big problem. And that the whole heavy metal issue is actually very overlooked, I think, in uh, in our society right now. Mm-hmm. And heavy metals are some of the things that can break down the blood-brain barrier. Mm-hmm. I think that's been implicated in autism with the uh, aluminum or mercury in the vaccines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they also um, heavy heavy metal toxicity also messes with um, with the conversion of omega three and omega omega six fatty acids in um, in the cell membrane. So you're, you're meant to have this specific ratio between omega-3s and omega-6s, but if, you're heavy, if you've got um, heavy metal toxicity, then your body essentially doesn't know what to do with those fatty acids, and you build up an excess of omega-6 fatty acids in your tissues and in your cell membranes, and that basically in and of itself triggers a cascade of information. Um, it says here in this article, um, it talks about how Toxic heavy metals can also shift the equilibrium of equili- equilibrium activity of delta six desaturase to increase the production of GLA, DGLA, and AA, and to de- decrease the production of EPA, DPA, and DHA. 
So EPA, DHA, and DPA are omega-3 fatty acids, and they're essentially um, anti-inflammatory, whereas the others are pro-inflammatory. So what you're doing if you're, if you're toxic with heavy, heavy metals is you're basically just increasing inflammation by like tenfold in your body. So it's good to do one of those heavy metal detoxes maybe a few times a year. Like you can use uh, Corella, cilantro, zeolite. Uh, what's that uh, pill that chelates heavy metals? Uh, DMSA? Yeah, DMSA. Do one of those maybe two or three times a year just to keep your body in balance. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, to be cautious with that too, like, uh, you know, look up the protocol, make sure you're doing it in the right way because you can flush, especially if you're overly saturated with a certain heavy metal or a combination of them, you know, if you flush it out too quickly. Um, yeah, I guess I'm not aware of any lethal side effects to that, but you certainly can give yourself a, a, a really uh, acute uh, illness, you know, and yeah, if you, you have wanna... to go to make sure that you remineralize afterwards because it can deplete yeah. like the good minerals from your body. So if you do yeah. the cycle, make sure you follow the directions to the letter. Right. Well, we spoke a little bit about that in the iodine show too. You know that the iodine can also release those heavy metals stored in the brain. For some people, myself included, <laughs> it can be a pretty unfriendly experience. Very you know? depressing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Another that interesting. Go, Sorry, go, go ahead, Elliot, John. Oh, I was just going to say another interesting thing about iodine is um, is its association with DHA. So there was um, there's an article on salt. Oh. Hello, I think I've cut out again. Oh, we can hear you now. Oh, am I still here? Sorry, it went quiet. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's this article. Um, it's called Harvard and UCSC Scientists Show How DHA Resolves Inflammation. It's basically this um, this study that was conducted. Um, it was published in the FASEB journal. Anyway, what this showed was that DHA essentially... Um, inhibited inflammation or it decreased inflammation in the body now dha is is a common uh, sort of component of fish oil and so when people talk about omega-3 fatty acids and how good they are for the brain how good good they are for anti-inflammation they're talking about um, dha and epa so basically dha um it has this amazing effect on inflammation it chronic it drastically decreases it but one of the interesting things about iodine is iodine is um it it basically acts to protect dha in the body so when you ingest dha it's a polyunsaturated fatty acid so what that means is it's it's very prone to degrading it's very prone to something called oxidation what iodine does to dha is it essentially protects it it acts as an antioxidant and this is why you find DHA and iodine in fish. Um, and yeah, so essentially iodine has, uh, aside from all of the other amazing quali- qu- uh, 
Um, it also acts to protect this vitally important nutrient, DHA, in the body. Yeah, because mm. when you have an infection, you have these white blood cells and macrophages that come in to eat up the infection. So if you have ample DHA, it won't all get used up because the macrophages will use the DHA to produce something called a maricin. And the maricins act like a switch to turn inflammation on and off. So if you have enough DHA, you can produce these maricins and it can turn off the inflammatory response. Hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, cold therapy is also really good for DHA as well, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, cold therapy is really good for um, for maintaining DHA stores. But one of the most important things for maintaining DHA, um, well, there's actually two things. There's one that it should be gotten in adequate amounts in the diet, um, and that's really important. I know there is some DHA in grass-fed meats, um, but like lamb really, is higher in yeah. DHA. Lamb is very high in DHA, but really the highest sources of DHA are um, are actually found in natural fish foods. So oysters, um, they have an extraordinarily high amount of DHA. Cold water fish. Now, the int- I mean, you, you can take supplement form of DHA, but I would say personally it, it would be a better idea to take it in its natural form because you also have the cofactors like iodine and we know that iodine protects dha in the body from oxidation also has selenium which works in conjunction with iodine so <laughs> it can get quite complex but um yeah the, the the main important thing to remember is to eat enough dha in the diet but secondly what we need to remember is that um, exposure to blue light actually degrades DHA in the retina. Y- your body can't store that much DHA, so so its it, its main concentration in the body is actually in the eyeball. Okay, hmm. but when when you're exposed to blue light, uh, what this actually does is degrades that DHA in your eye. So in order to maintain DHA levels, um, it, it would be very important to limit your blue light exposure preferably um you can get these sort of amber tinted goggles now these are really important um especially when it gets dark or when you're looking at a computer screen um yeah that's something you can do to sort of try and try and maintain your dha levels Hmm. and if you are gonna you know take fish oils you have to be very careful like the kind that you get because some of it is probably already oxidized by the time that you get it um, but if you're going to try and do it because for some reason you can't get fresh fish, you can't get uh, sardines or oysters, if you can try and get it when it's produced in the winter time and have it sent to you during the winter when it's cold and they should be in like a dark capsule and a dark bottle and should be refrigerated, but still natural is best. But if you're going to try and supplement with fish oil, just make sure you get very good quality yeah, and uh, also another great alternative to fish oil, which I would probably recommend um, over fish oil, is krill oil. Like krill are basically these these small sort of um, you know shrimp-like creatures. Uh, they you know basically they're, they're not as prone to oxidation. 
Mm-hmm. So if it, 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 there's been studies done on on krill oil when compared to fish oil, and it, it, it was showed that krill oil, you know, withstood um, much longer periods in and um, and in the light. So really, if you can afford it, it's a little bit more expensive, but krill oil is probably the way to go, in mm. my opinion. I would wonder if there's a way to, uh, you know, find out uh, where where the oil actually comes from, like what region, um, because I, I'd be keen to avoid, you know, fish oil that came out of the Pacific Ocean due to like Fukushima or I, I know I remember um, reading a little while ago that uh, a lot of the dead fish that had turned up from the Gulf oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico had actually just been kind of harvested and then taken for fish oil. Um, and so, you know, I, uh, that's, that's like, uh, I, I can't verify that right now, so I don't want to try to fear monger, but I'm saying like, if there's a way for you to, uh, discover what the source of these oils, um, are, you know, and the quality, um, sometimes it requires paying a little bit more. Um, but sometimes you just need to like call the company and be like, Hey, where do you get this from? You know, if you can get through them in that way. Yeah. And they are making a lot of fish oil with GMO added you know oils too so if you go to like a costco or a sam's club wouldn't recommend buying their fish oil Mm -hmm. as you said you know read the ingredients because it will tell you right on there it won't say gmo oil but it will say canola (laughs) or soybean which you can just assume is not good Mm -hmm. um I wanted to say too, while we were talking about the heavy metals issue, that uh, clay is is really good for that. Um, and I've done a bit of research, though I wouldn't consider myself an expert, but uh, um, it's uh, pretty affordable. Uh, it's really easy to take, and it's an extremely effective uh, chelator for heavy metals. Um, so if you look into uh, French green clay, uh, bentonite, montmorillonite, um, different combinations of those, there are specifically blended uh, clay combinations that are made for internal usage that you can get online. Um, But just if you're going to look into that, be really careful not to get cosmetic green clay because a lot of that has aluminum added to it. Um, So it's not like you can just say, like, I'm just going to order some French green clay and then take it internally. Like, look into it, make sure that it's pure and that there's no additives, uh, and preferably that it's actually intended for internal use um but that's a really effective chelator so speaking of just inflammation in general yoga has been found to uh, decrease amounts of inflammation they did a study where they had people do like the yoga breathing uh, for just 12 minutes a day for eight weeks, and they found that when they tested their blood, they have lower levels of C-reactive protein. So what's so <clears throat> great about yoga? I mean, it's very relaxing, but, um, yeah, that's one of the good things about it. Well, there's well, definitely we... um, this idea about the vagus nerve controls intestinal inf- inflammation. So there's an article on SOT for those who are interested and for anybody that has tried the EE program or those regular practitioners 
um, the relationship between stimulating the vagus nerve and reducing inflammation in all of the organs of the body. So um, also acupuncture can be anti-inflammatory by stimulating the vagus nerve and its effect on these microphanges that you were talking about, Tiffany, that result in uh, tissue inflammation. Mm -hmm. And then, wait for it, nicotine Mm -hmm. is anti-inflammatory by acting on the acetylcholine receptors normally responsive to acetylcholine released by the vagus nerve. So you guys have any more to share on that? Doug disappeared. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. But, um, you know, for those who've practiced the EE breathing or um, this yogic breathing that Tiffany was talking about, the ujjayi pranayama, um, the constriction in the throat in that breathing through the nose, keeping the throat slightly constricted, stimulates the vagus nerve in the throat and it... Mm -hmm really helps with inflammation in the brain, for sure. I mean, there was an article on SOT, um, very short, easy to read, about reprogramming inflammation with meditation and how they did a study um, at the University of Wisconsin showing that meditation can actually affect the genes that cause inflammation. So they measured the effects of a day of intensive mindfulness meditation in a group of experienced meditators and compared them with those of quiet, non-meditative activities by a group of untrained volunteers. So after eight hours of meditation, the researchers found altered levels of gene-regulating compounds and reduced activity levels of the pro-inflammatory genes in the experienced meditators. These changes were correlated with faster physical recovery from a stressful situation. They also reported that these findings are the first to show that meditation can inhibit the production of proteins by some genes that cause inflammation and noted that the study's outset, there were no differences in the genes tested in both groups. They also reported that positive changes were seen in genes that are targets of anti-inflammatory and pain-killing drugs. So basically, practicing breathing exercises like we share in the areolus program and meditation exercises consistently will help slow those inflammatory responses in the brain and in the body. So a lack of stressful thoughts like slowing down the chatter in your brain can turn off genes that make you inflamed. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to our show on the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. You know, when you when you've eaten some inflammatory foods and your knees aching or your body's aching or you have a headache, to start to stimulate your vagus nerve by practicing these breathing exercises and to calm that inflammatory response in your system. Mm. I like to have a visualization of it, like if I ate too much mashed potatoes and my knee hurts, I'm going to (laughs) focus my breathing on my knee and let go of that pain, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do, do any of you guys have any experience with that? I, not learn? specific, not mm-hmm. specific experience, um, like, you know, with an actual condition. I mean, I can say that I generally uh, feel better uh, when I'm able to relax, and, and especially if when I do, like, the areolus program um, overall. I guess for me, it, it manifests as... Uh, 
which this may sound kind of strange, but I, I get a lot of movement in my joints, especially in the upper part of my neck um, and in my knuckles um, and sometimes kind of in my hips. Uh, by movement, I mean like they'll, they'll pop and crack a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> my chiropractor told me that that's not always bad. Uh, it's, it's actually, in a way, it's good because it's a sign that the tissue around the joint is not inflamed uh, allowing it to move where it needs to go. Yeah, I um, noticed and, that. I noticed yeah, that too, I, like uh, doing the meditation. Yeah. I feel the need to stretch more, not during the meditation, but you know, afterwards and during the day, and I do notice that I hear my joints popping more. I mean, before I didn't yeah. really feel the need to stretch a lot, but now that I do stretch a lot, I can hear the popping and the clicking sometimes. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And it's, I definitely notice when I'm, when I'm not inflamed, a, a clear sign to me is that I will get the, the popping and the cracking. Um, most often in my neck, where if I just, like, obviously you don't want to ream on your head. You don't want to put sideways pressure on your, on your head. But even just leaning my head slightly to the side, you know, and there will be some tension and then it goes pop. Um, but when I'm inflamed, that, uh, that doesn't happen. Like, it, it's like you can't get it to move. Uh, and... Like I said, there's just advice from the chiropractor. He said that's that's likely a a, a a marker of inflammation because the tissue around the joint is puffed up and it, not letting it move correctly. Yeah, so the stiffness goes away. Yeah, I've yeah. noticed yep. too with the uh, the meditation that my mood is a lot better. I don't have as many like blah days or dark thoughts. So, yeah, that's another sign of not being as inflamed, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And it's really remarkable, especially with the EE program, after just 10 rounds of the pipe breath, in through the nose, out through the mouth, how it, you get this sense of calm that comes over the entire body. So especially if you're in a stressful situation and you just start to notice everything tense up, your jaw, your shoulders, your body, you get these physical sensations of stress to just know to use that breath to stimulate that vagus nerve to stop or at least um, try and mediate that inflammatory response, you know? Mm-hmm. And another good thing about the meditation is that it helps you sleep better. And sleep or a lack of sleep can uh, cause inflammation. They did a study where they subjected well, they just studied people who stayed awake from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. So just partial uh, sleep problems can cause an increase in something called nuclear factor B, which is a signal of inflammation. So just after being awake for that period of time during the night, for one night, that nuclear factor B went up. So that just shows how important it is to have regular restful sleep, sleep enough, you know, sleep in a dark room, not be too hot, you know, just be comfortable and get at least eight hours or however much your body needs. So so when you wake up, you're feeling rested and not still a little groggy and tired. Definitely. With lack of sleep, you you start to notice the the cascade of all Mm -hmm. these inflammatory responses. It's almost like the immune system is taking a hit and then everything is is a little bit more susceptible. Mm-hmm. 
you're more susceptible to colds and flus and other infections. And plus the brain fog you get when you don't have a good night's sleep and you start forgetting things or dropping things and not being able to think straight. Yeah, and if people do actually have um, issues with their sleep, then one thing to try would be to um, to keep the window open at night time mm-hmm. and preferably throughout the whole day, even if it's cold outside. And another thing is... Um, is try sleep naked because yes. if you're wearing yeah if you're wearing like underpants or a t-shirt or anything like that then the body finds it hard to to lower the temperature it needs to regulate the temperature it's signal to produce melatonin so when you sleep it's the lowest body temperature that you're going to have in the whole day so your body needs to lower that temperature. It's really important that your body can lower that body temperature. Then, um, yeah, if, if you're too hot or you've got clothes on, then your body finds it a lot harder to do that. And sometimes it can't produce those vital chemicals that do um, facilitate a, a restful night's sleep. Hmm. Well, and as we shared on a previous show, you know, sleep issues plague many people, you know, and it's mm-hmm. it's good to notice, you know, when you get out of balance and you start to lose sleep, how things can really start to go downhill from there. Mm-hmm. And and I agree with Tiffany, the meditation before bed, essential to slowing the mind down, slowing the body down, preparing for relaxation and you got to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the blue light issue that Elliot brought up too. Um, definitely. I notice uh, not necessarily all the time, but there are specific times where I notice if I'm using the computer right up until the point where I go to bed and then I just go from that, like turn it off and go to bed. It, it takes me a lot longer to fall asleep. Yeah. You should get some of those glasses. Yeah, I'm actually I've been thinking about that. Yeah, the blue blocker glasses. Yeah, yeah. And not having that makes... that electrical stimulation at least an hour before bed. Mm-hmm. So you know, right. um, turning everything off, not reading on a tablet, maybe reading a book, like switching your mind into a different state. Yep. There is a program for anybody who uses uh, Windows. I'm not sure if it exists for Mac or for Linux, but uh, it's called Flux. Yeah. Um, and that actually it syncs up with your clock and the time zone and the light changes. And then as the sun begins to go down and it gets darker, it will shift the color of your screen to a little more of a red tint and take the blue out of the screen. So it's not a cure-all, but it does uh, help. Yeah, ever since I I started wearing blue blocking glasses, um, I found my sleep just, you know, it transformed. It, it was really amazing because I just thought it was fairly normal to wake up quite groggy every single day. <laughs> and then I, you know, as it started to get dark, um, you know, I stick on my blue blue blocking goggles. And, um, and I actually, I found that, you know, for the first time in my life, I, I actually felt tired by about nine o'clock. 
And that was really strange for me because, you know, I was one of those sort of night owls who, you know, you could happily stay awake until 4, 4 a.m. every night. But um, as soon as I started wearing them, uh, you know, it, 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 was, it was really quite amazing. Hmm. Yeah, it's certainly something to try out. Uh, Mikey in the chat says that uh, for listeners who might not be in the chat, that uh, for Linux, there is also a program called Redshift that works quite well for changing the, the color tint of your screen. So what so, else can well, we I do to relieve inflammation? Mild, well, we've mild about... to moderate exercise? <laughs> not yeah. marathon running? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, meditation, relaxation, specifically the areolus breathing program. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, diet changes. Uh, detoxing heavy metals to the best of your ability. Um, Turmeric uh, one... is a great one too, mm-hmm. especially for yep. body inflammation. Um, yep. A few of our chatters talked about certain ailments in the shoulders or the knees or the hips or the low back. You can even um, put turmeric in a in a massage oil. It's not the cleanest, you know, might turn your skin a little bit yellow, but actual physical application of turmeric in addition to taking it internally. I mean, there's numerous articles on SOT about the anti-inflammatory properties of turmeric. Mm-hmm. Um, MSM for joint problems. Uh, it's methyl sulfonyl methane, but just you'll find it under the name MSM. Um, that is quite effective uh, for systemic inflammation, but also specifically for joints and for cartilage. Yeah, I've, exper- I've experimented with that. with that, and I was wondering why I was having heart palpitations all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> so again, as with everything, you have to try it for yourself and see if your body likes it, even though it might be hailed as like a wonder supplement. Try yeah. it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and magnesium. Yeah. Uh, magnesium bath. You know, do do your meditative breathing in the bath magnesium mm-hmm. and that's a pretty easy one to like uh epsom salts are, are pretty affordable and usually easy to find at like a supermarket or something so that's something that i think most people can get their hands on so um well, I, we've covered a lot of good information here today, and uh, I think we are nearing the end of our time. So let's uh, let's go to the pet health segment uh, for today. Zoya has a, a little talk for us about how veterinarians make diagnoses. Um, that sounds like some pretty interesting information. Um, and we will be back after this. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to share with you thoughts on why many people find medical, and specifically veterinary professionals, so fascinating, and how the way veterinarians think can be related to the way we all think and solve problems in our everyday lives. So, most of us like detective stories. Many of us, when we were still children, played all kinds of games, 
where we imagined ourselves being spies, explorers, or great adventurers. As a race, we like mysteries and riddles. Therefore, it isn't surprising that some of us would like to be able to solve riddles in our professional life as well. It's not always easy. In fact, as a student that is almost a full-blown veterinarian doctor, I can tell you that there is a huge difference between theoretical knowledge and practical experience. High grades don't heal, that's for sure. And actually, the fact that we have this saying, doctor from God, for example, indicates that medicine is like another form of art. It's a talent that, in some cases, no amount of training is able to imitate. It happens when doctors use the intuition or some other abilities that are not overly systemized. So what is behind the magic of correct diagnosis? And what can we learn from it about the way we think and approach other problems? After all, veterinarians are human too. So here are some ideas that I took from a fascinating article titled Case-Based Clinical Reasoning in Feline Medicine, Intuitive and Analytical Systems. But first, please remember the following main concepts. There are two main forms in which a brain does its thinking. There is system one thinking, which is immediate and unconscious, and system two thinking, thoughtful and analytical. The article poses a question. If in this era of evidence-based veterinary medicine, where accuracy and objectivity have perhaps became, uh, become valued more than skepticism and open-mindedness, is it heresy to use intuitive part and recognition to diagnose disease in practice? Many who advocate this um, exclusive use of an analytical, problem-oriented approach would answer with an empathic yes believing the thought processes of pattern recognition to be fraught with inaccuracy and cognitive error, while the sometimes spectacular failings of intuitive reasoning cannot be denied, it is accepted that experienced clinicians, especially elite clinicians, find it difficult not to engage in intuitive reasoning from the moment they first see the patient and its owner. Furthermore, if intuitive pattern recognition or other forms of intuitive reasoning are used more effectively through conscious refining, this will save time and money for clients by sharpening diagnostic accuracy and reducing unnecessary tests and procedures. Moreover, intuitive reasoning, especially pattern recognition, comes naturally and intuitively to many clinicians even if they cannot appreciate how and why it occurs. So is there room for using both approaches? The question is truly rhetorical as there is a wealth of evidence from the psychology, economics and medical literature to establish the power of using both cognitive approaches. And so this argue, article argues that there is merit in using both intuitive reasoning pattern recognition being the most well-known form of system one thinking and the analytical problem-oriented uh, forward reasoning approach as trained form of system two thinking. The bottom line is that most optimal solution is to combine both systems. It means that whenever intuitive system one thinking is employed, it should, where possible, be tested and backed up with evidence provided by analytical system two thinking. 
The question is why do some veterinarians favor one system over the other in the way they think about clinical problems? The short answer is we don't really know, but perhaps inherited and acquired personality traits play a key role in dispositional tendencies. It was once suggested that individuals inclined to use more of the right side of the brain feel more comfortable with intuitive thinking, while those who use the left side of the brain feel more comfortable with the analytical, problem-oriented diagnostic approach to the system two thinking has to offer. However, like most good stories, it has been refuted through um, further research, particularly neuroimaging studies. What is accepted, however, is that those of us who do favor system two thinking, like using lists and organizational charts, while system two thinking is criticized for being costly, time-consuming, and stifling of creativity, it is probably more protective of mistakes being made in the reasoning process, so long as the detection or perception component is not flawed. The novice clinician, like me, for example, will find system two thinking tiring and laborious, but fruitful in terms of developing understanding and expertise about disease presentations. Importantly, once a newly encountered disease condition has been diagnosed using system two thinking, the stored case information, either as a simple pattern or a more complex illness script, becomes accept, uh, accessible through an unconscious system one thinking mechanism the next time such a problem is encountered. Central to system two thinking is the ability to consciously resolve a large number of signs and findings into a smaller finite number of mini patterns or problems. Generally, there should be fewer than five problems. It is due to the fact that working or short-term memory usually struggles with more than five, so that the amount of information to be processed is not too overwhelming. By contrast, intuitive system one thinking using pattern recognition is about the emergence or recognition of complete patterns, um, or sometimes partial patterns, through unforced or unconscious thought. This form of uh, abductive reasoning asks the question, sometimes unwittingly, what is the most plausible explanation for the pattern? Although it still comes up uh, with a hypothesis, as does system two thinking, it does it in a way that relies on long-term memories of past cases and often ignores what is regarded as um, useless data, referred uh, to by engineers or neuroscientists as noise. In essence, it is a recall of one or more past experiences, especially your own clinical experiences, but also from texts uh, written or seminars attended. It relies on key aspects of, of the history, which are often interconnected, observation of the patient, uh, physical findings, and characteristic diagnostic imaging or laboratory findings. These triggered past experiences may be simple patterns or may take the form of extended case histories referred to as illness scripts. Such scripts are strongly suggestive of either a final diagnosis or a fruitful avenue for further investigation through an established hypothesis. Well, there is much more fascinating information in this article, and I'm actually not done reading it. There are three parts, but you get the idea. Also, some of you uh, maybe were able to see and recognize the same concepts discussed in books like Blink or Thinking Fast and Slow, for example. If so, then you can understand my excitement about this material. 
It is indeed very exciting to see that veterinarian specialists utilize pattern recognition and use similar concepts while treating our furry, furry companions. So I hope that it was interesting. And that's it for this segment. Have a nice weekend and goodbye. <laughs> All right, thanks. Uh, that was great. Um, definitely uh, worth looking into the system one and system two thinking. Um, really interesting correlations there with how they make diagnoses. Uh, and that's also uh, very helpful for just determining how we think, you know, and where our impulses and things come from. So uh, for the topic of our show, you know, we can tie that into how you make choices about what you're eating and like kind of where your cravings come from. Uh, you can use these techniques to determine, you know, am I, am I just thinking instinctually uh, quickly or am I actually analyzing what's going on in my head and making smart choices based on that? So uh, today for the recipe is not, not really a specific recipe, but more so of a technique that I was playing with this last week, and it's kind of fun. Uh, it, I don't know. It may, it may not necessarily be fun for everybody, uh, but for me, I like to play with food. So I noticed that uh, when I was making burgers, um, a lot of the time in the pan, uh, no, depending on whether or not you grill all the time or not, but if you make burgers on the stovetop, uh, they will like puff up and get really uh, kind of roundish. And um, sometimes they can dry out that way. And other times it can make it hard if you're trying to stack, like if you want to put bacon and avocado and stuff on top of the burger, uh, it can actually make it kind of hard to eat because then everything will just fall apart on your plate and you might as well just kind of mash it all together. Uh, so I got curious and looked up how to make uh, skinny burgers and it's it's actually pretty simple, but it was kind of a light bulb for me. Uh, so you take the uh, the, the ground beef, um, make it into a ball, uh, maybe about twice the size of a golf ball, depending on how big you want your burgers to be. Uh, get the pan really hot, put some oil like bacon fat or, or butter in there. And then uh, put the, the, the balls of ground beef in the pan. Just slightly compress them uh, so that they're not all the way uh, compressed and let them cook on one side for about a minute <clears throat> and then flip the balls over uh, to the other side so that the, the, the fried side is up and you'll have kind of like a, a portion of that side of the sphere that's cooked. You flip them over and then as soon as you flip them over, you mash them down. And I know that this is antithetical to a lot of burger connoisseurs. You're not ever supposed to mash burgers, but they actually turned out really good. So you flip them over and then mash them down really hard and make them really flat. And that previously cooked side of the ball of ground beef actually holds them together and prevents them from kind of breaking apart into a bunch of pieces. So then you, you mash them down, you cook that for about a minute on that side, then flip them back over to the first side and cook for about another minute. And what you end up is, with is, is actually quite uh, juicy, thin uh, burger patties. And that can make it easier for, um, you know, stacking other things on top of the burger, if, depending on what you want to, uh, you know, how you want to like put it together. Um, I usually like to have mine with like some bacon, avocado and aioli and maybe some sprouts on top. Um, and then it, it makes it a little bit easier to kind of contain that whole thing. And then you can eat it with a knife and a fork. So that's a good technique. That's my, 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it nice. actually works really well. And you'd think that they'd be like like kind of dry and kind of burnt, uh, but they're not. If you cook them for that very short period of time, they actually come out really juicy. So Another thing you can do to not have dry burgers is mix a little bit of ground pork in with the, the beef and some uh, sure. bacon fat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've had fun with doing that with butter, uh, basically just um, – cube uh some cold butter and then really work it into the ground beef with your hands when you're mixing it up yeah that comes down nice <laughs> butter, butter burgers, burgers yeah. are better <laughs> with no yep. bun <laughs> a right, bun no free bun. butter burger <laughs> <laughs> uh and i'm also currently kind of experimenting with uh using um so we had done some uh pork rind, uh, pork rind flour recipes in the past for making kind of baked goods with, uh, with ground pork rinds, uh, so that you get a very, very low carb, uh, kind of baked good that you can make. And, um, I've been trying to use gelatin as, uh, an emulsifier as opposed to like xanthan gum or anything else. Uh, and it works really well. So I'm trying to work up a recipe for that and I'm hopefully we'll be able to do that next week. Um, so maybe we can have buns with your burger. Yeah, we've had uh, pork rind buns. They've turned out yeah. pretty good. Put like onion flakes on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. nice. And you can nice. also use lettuce as a bun, but it's not quite as fun as a pork <laughs> rind bun. Nah, not quite the same. <laughs> all right, well, that's our show for today. Thanks uh, to all the chat participants for uh, tuning in and for taking part in the discussion. And to our listeners... Um, and, uh, just want to remind you to check out, uh, the truth. Well, is the truth perspective on now tomorrow or is that going to be? No, they're going to merge onto Sunday. That's right. So the truth perspective and behind the headlines are merging and will now be aired on Sunday still at noon, uh, Eastern time. Okay. Uh, so, uh, no show tomorrow, but be sure to tune in on Sunday. Uh, and there are some things going on behind the scenes here at South Talk Radio. We're working on some new show ideas, so uh, be sure to stay tuned. We may have other shows coming into the mix and uh, hopefully and even possibly some multilingual shows uh, for our overseas listeners. So that would be really exciting. Um, so check out radio.sot.net on Sunday. Uh, and if you're, of course, not everybody's in the U.S. Eastern time zone, so uh, the correct time zone will be displayed on uh, radio.sod.net, wherever you are. So just be sure to check that page out um, and check out the show. So we will be back uh, next week. Thanks again, everybody, and have a great weekend. Bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs>